Well, it is an honor to be with you all this morning. As Rod mentioned, uh, I am a Bible teacher in a classroom setting uh, that's a little bit smaller of a classroom than this one. Um, but before I was a Bible teacher in a classroom, um, I was on staff at a church uh, in another church around the town. And I tell you that just to say that I've done ministry in a couple different contexts. And uh, it has been a pleasure for my family um, to be a part of Crossroads for the last four plus years and just to be a part of this church family, this church home. And as the leaders here would say, uh, this is not a perfect place, but this is absolutely a special place. And I'm so grateful to be a part of it. One of the ways that I've been able to be involved here is through electives. And I don't know if you know this, but there are some really great electives that happen here. And I'm not just saying that because I'm about to tell you about one I'm going to be teaching in January, but I'm setting myself up pretty good here. Um, so uh, the electives are just an opportunity on a short-term basis for you to dive into a topic that may be interesting to you. And I know some of you have gone through Bible classes or Bible school or maybe master's level, um, and there's still opportunities for you for sure. Um, but some of you are just looking to maybe fill in some of the gaps in your understanding. Um, you listen to sermons, you um, listen to podcasts or things like that, and you're still looking for opportunities to fill in some of those gaps. And what better way to do that than just in an, op an opportunity like an elective where you can learn in community? So I just wanted to put before you one opportunity, which happens to be the one I'm teaching, coming up in January, uh, three weeks in a row, January 16, 23, and 30, 11 a.m. in the upper room. And that elective is called Encountering the World of Jesus, a Historical, Social, and Cultural Overview of the Time Between the Testaments and Beyond. The first thing we're going to do is learn how to say that title, okay? Um, but if you've been to the Silent Years elective that I've done in the past, it's essentially the same elective with a little bit of tweaking to it. Um, but uh, hopefully, if that's interesting to you, feel free to come and check that out on January 16th. So... When I was asked to preach on, uh, to, for today, December 26th, December 26th is a tricky day to write a sermon for because there's at least two different types of people in the room right now. Some of you, December 26th, you are just still in full-on Christmas mode. You came to church today and the Christmas music is still going, the tree is still up, the lights are still going. You are going to keep Christmas in your house as long as foreseeably allowed in the future right? Christmas is in full swing. And some of you today, it is December 26th. It is not December 25th. And you didn't come to the 9 a.m. because you were taking the tree down, right? And we've got two different types of people in this room right now, so maybe more. But hopefully uh, what we do today will cover both of you. So let me ask, um, as I read God's word to you, uh, please stand in body or in spirit for the reading of the text, please turn to Luke chapter 2, and all of the Christmas people said yes. <laughs> Luke chapter 2. Give you a moment to get there. I'll begin in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, 
and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. You may be seated. So settings are really important in biblical narratives. And what we have in Luke 2 is a biblical narrative, really important biblical narrative. But settings are really important. Um, Take, for instance, the book of Ruth. Uh, If you were here a few months ago, uh, we went through the book of Ruth in about four weeks. And the book of Ruth starts with a really important note of setting. It begins by saying, in the days when the judges ruled. And it would be really easy just to pass right over that to get into the book. But you really need to know what it means when the judges ruled and why those days are important. Because in the days when the judges ruled were some of the darkest days in Israel's history. They were not representing God as a nation. They were not displaying him to the people. And they really were having quite an identity crisis. They were in a downward downward spiral as a people. So in the days when the judges ruled, in some of the darkest days of the history of the people, Ruth steps into the story. And who is Ruth? She's not an Israelite, but she's actually an enemy. She's a Moabite. And through the course of this story, Ruth the Moabite ends up being a better example of what the Israelites are supposed to be than the Israelites are being at the time. And we get that from the setting of the story. Or take, for instance, the David and Bathsheba narrative. Don't worry, I'm not going too far into the story. 2 Samuel chapter 11 begins with, In the spring, when kings go to war, and then just a few moments later it says, But David remained in Jerusalem. Which is confusing because David is the king. David is not where he is supposed to be, and bad things happen when people are not where they are supposed to be. And this story ends up being a turning point in the life of David. Settings matter in biblical narratives. So in the Luke 2 story, we have a setting that, to be honest, we've heard this story so many times. Some of you hear it in the voice of Linus right now, right, from Peanuts. Maybe a better way to hear it, but um, we've heard this story so many times that we probably just skip over the beginning. But I do believe that the beginning provides a really important note of context and setting that helps us to better understand the gravity of what's going to happen later on in the story. In those days, Caesar Augustus. Five words. In those days, Caesar Augustus. So let's just take a few minutes and unpack what does that mean? How does that setting help us better understand the gravity of this story? So who is this Caesar? 
Why does he matter? So Caesar Augustus, or his born name Octavian, uh, was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and he became the sole ruler of the Roman Empire after a long, bloody civil war that saw the Roman Republic become the Roman Empire, an empire that would rule the world for centuries. And many would say that Caesar Augustus is the first but the most important emperor of that Roman Empire. So what was he remembered for? What's his contribution? Why is he so important? Caesar Augustus brought order, he brought justice, and he brought peace to his empire. And he did this through, now many of you are going to have your high school history classes going through your mind right now, he did this through the famed Pax Romana, right, the Roman peace. And the Pax Romana was an unprecedented time of worldwide stability throughout the Roman Empire. They experienced peace. Peace under the rule of Caesar Augustus. But the question is, what did that peace look like? What did it mean to experience the peace of Caesar Augustus? And the Roman poet Virgil wrote this. You, O Roman, remember to rule the nations with might. This will be your genius to impose the way of peace. In other words, Peace under Caesar Augustus was peace through might. It was peace through power. Peace was something that was imposed. You will live in peace or else. It's largely been said that to enjoy Caesar's peace depended upon which side of the sword you were on. I'll say that again. To enjoy Caesar's peace depended upon which side of the sword you were on. So it was a pseudo-peace. It was a conditional peace. It was not peace for everybody. It was peace through power. It was peace through might. It was peace through imposition. Let me just ask, are we ever guilty of offering a conditional peace to others? I will live at peace with you as long as you align with my agenda. I will live at peace with you as long as you get with my program. But if that doesn't happen, then I am not responsible for what you might experience. Depends on what side of the sword you're on. And in Caesar Augustus's empire, the Roman peace was a pseudo-peace. But not only did, uh, did Caesar Augustus offer peace, but Augustus represented the beginning of Caesar's of these emperors being exalted to godlike status. Even Caesar Augustus's name, his name Octavian, he was given the name Augustus. It means exalted. And he was given that name by the Roman Senate when he took his seat as emperor in 27 BC. And it wasn't just other people exalting him. When Caesar Augustus's adopted father died, Julius Caesar, a comet appears in the sky and Caesar Augustus points to that comet and he says, that is my father ascending to the heavens. In other words, what he's saying about his father is he's saying, my father Julius Caesar is now taking his place among the gods. And if his father is now taking his place among the gods, what does that make Augustus? He's a son of the gods. And he was happy to wear that title. See, Caesar Augustus was a son of the gods who brings justice and he brings peace throughout his empire. 
And one of the most fascinating evidences about this is this archaeological site in Priene. Priene is in Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. Um, there's a picture of the inscription here. So in 9 BC, just think about this for a moment. Jesus is born, most would say, in 5 BC, okay, or 4 BC. So about five years before the birth of Jesus, this inscription appears in Priene as they literally reorient the calendar in the Roman Empire around the birth of Augustus. And this is what the inscription says about Augustus. Providence has set our lives in the most perfect order by giving us Augustus that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, that he might end war and arrange all things since by his birth, listen to this, the beginning of the gospel for the world has come. These are the words that were spoken about Caesar Augustus on the Priennian inscription as they literally rearranged the calendar around the birth of Caesar Augustus. Augustus was sent to benefit mankind, to be a savior, to bring peace by ending war and arranging all things, what power he has to arrange all things. And that last line, that the birth of Caesar Augustus is the beginning of the gospel for the world. And if that word gospel is familiar, that word gospel, the Greek word evangelion, it's what we translate today as good news, gospel or good news. And as we will see later, the New Testament authors are not going to shy away from using this word for their purposes in describing a different gospel. So, if you are possibly the greatest emperor that has ever lived, if people are hailing you as a son of the gods and you're hailing yourself as one as well, if your birth is hailed as the gospel, the good news for the entire world, what do you do? What do you do? How do you show your greatness? You count your stuff, right? You count your stuff so that you can show people. I remember when I was little, I would take my piggy bank and I would dump it out on the floor and I would count everything I had, right? And then I would do the same thing the very next day, hoping that it had substantially grown overnight, right? Usually had not. But we can count our stuff in order to somehow show our greatness, right? And when we get older, it just changes, right? Just check our stocks online or our property values on Zillow or our Bitcoin values, whatever, okay? We can, we can fill in the blanks there. But we can be tempted to count in order to show greatness. And so Augustus, what does he do? He has a census, and sure, he needs the census for military purposes. He needs it for taxation purposes. But I believe at the heart of Augustus' census is this desire to show his greatness to the world. He believes something about himself, and I believe he wants to show it to the world. So at the beginning of our passage, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to their own town to register. Enter a new character. So Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. 
Now again, we might be tempted to skim through this part to get to the good stuff. I want to get to the baby and the manger and the angels and the shepherds. I want to get to the good stuff. I assure you, this is good stuff. When we read this, if we're paying attention to our Bibles, all sorts of lights should be going off in our brains as we read this because Luke is trying to really point out an incredibly important reality to us here. Joseph has to go to Bethlehem. Joseph has to go to Bethlehem. It's not that he just ended up in Bethlehem. It's not that he just stumbled into Bethlehem. Joseph has to go to Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old, of ancient times. Bethlehem has an important place for centuries in the origins of the Messiah. But Luke doesn't stop there. If you look in the narrative, Luke keeps adding titles. He doesn't just say Bethlehem, but he says Bethlehem what? What does he call it? The town of David. And he's not just doing that for his sake, he's doing that for our sake. He calls it the town of David. And then he doesn't just stop there. I imagine Luke being so incredibly excited as he writes this. It's like he's revealing something so important that's been hidden for centuries. Bethlehem is the town of David. And then he goes on to say, Joseph has to go there because Joseph belonged to the house and the line of David. And I hear all sorts of prophecies just start exploding from the text. Like, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch a king who will reign justly and do or reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land in his day judah will be saved and israel will live in safety and that's just one there's so many see in those days caesar augustus is taking censuses but it is that very census that sends joseph to his hometown the town of david so that jesus the rightful king could be born on his rightful throne, the throne of King David. It is all pointing to Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus, but the days are coming, declares the Lord. When God will raise up a king, a righteous king, a true king, the only wise king, the only one who can take the throne. In those days, Caesar Augustus, but the days are coming, declares the Lord. And I was, I was reading through that passage. What struck me is that some days just feel like the days of Caesar Augustus. Some years have felt like the years of Caesar Augustus. What I mean by that is they just feel heavy and they just feel dark. And you just wonder who is in control and who is running this thing. And in the days of Caesar Augustus, we have to remember, but the days are coming, declares the Lord. The story continues. Jesus is born. He's wrapped in cloths. He's placed in a manger. In fact, the manger or the feeding trough, Luke seems really drawn to it. He mentions it three times in his narrative, and it's because it's going to become a signpost for what's going to happen next in the story. If news is this life-changing, if this announcement is so important, what would you do with it? Well, imagine you would go tell somebody. 
But who are you going to tell? Who would you, who'd you make this announcement to? And that's what's so shocking in the story because the announcement is made to shepherds who are out on the field. In verse 10, it says, But the angel said to them, the shepherds, Do not be afraid. I bring you, what does your text say? I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Did you catch the word? I bring you good news. It's the same word. That's gospel. Evangelion, gospel. It's not the announcement of the reign of the birth of a Caesar. But the birth of this baby is the beginning of the gospel. And it's not just for those on the right side of the sword, but did you hear who it was for? Who was it for? It's for all people. For all people. Good news that will cause great joy for all people. Jews and Gentiles alike. I think it's important it starts with shepherds. See, if the gospel isn't good news for everyone, then it isn't good news for anyone. Let me say that again. If the gospel isn't good news for everyone, then it isn't good news for anyone. The birth of this baby is the beginning of the gospel for the whole world. And in his ministry later on, Jesus has the audacity to seemingly act like he is good news for everyone. He invites everyone to follow him, even the wrong types of people. In the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount, he completely flips upside down the expectations of who gets to be a part of the kingdom of God. It's like he's throwing open the doors of the kingdom to anybody. He tells the religious leaders that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of them. And then later on, he takes his disciples turned apostles. He sends them to the ends of the earth to announce the reign of King Jesus. And then he says, invite Jews, invite Gentiles, invite them all. They're all welcome. Through faith in Jesus, everybody is welcome. The birth of Jesus is the beginning of the gospel for the whole world. If the gospel isn't good news for everybody, it's not good news for anybody. Now, I know I don't know you very well. And so believe me, when I ask this next thing, believe me, I ask it of myself first. Is the gospel good news for your neighbor? Is the gospel good news for your coworker? Is the gospel good news for those in your classes at school, walking in your hall? Is the gospel good news for your estranged family member? Is the gospel good news for those on the other side of the party line, the other side of the city, the other side of the tracks, the other side of the ideology? Is the gospel good news for your enemy? Because if the gospel isn't good news for everybody, it's not good news for anybody. And suddenly, the messenger angel is joined by a choir of angels who can't help but sing. That's what I love about this place, by the way, because I feel like this place, there's people that just can't help but sing. <laughs> Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. What's the word? Peace. Peace. 
on those on whom his favor rests. The birth of this baby is the beginning of the gospel for the world. And the birth of this baby is the beginning of peace for the world. And it's not a pseudo peace. It's not a conditional peace, but it's a peace offered by the one who will one day lay his life down again to offer this kind of peace. This is good news. This is peace and it is for all people. There are a lot of Caesars in the history book. There's only one King Jesus. There are a lot of rulers. There's only one who is wise just and right and worthy of our admiration. And there are many who can impose peace, but there is only one who can offer peace. In the Roman Empire, the Roman calendar was literally rearranged around the birth announcement of Caesar Augustus. And in this baby... This king in a manger who will have a kingdom that will never be destroyed. We literally have an announcement that you can arrange your entire life around. It's worthy of arranging your entire life around. And some of you have received pretty bad news in your life. Maybe even recently. News like your position has been eliminated. You're no longer necessary. Or you've been transferred We're moving. The diagnosis came back and it's not good. Mom and dad still love you, but we're not going to be living together anymore. Some of you have received news in your life, bad news, that's the kind of news that rearranges and reorients your entire life. And in the gospel, we have the kind of news, good news, the best news It's the announcement of the arrival of King that we literally get to rearrange our entire lives around. It's news that's that that trustworthy. It's not just December 25th news. It's December 26th news. It's May 26th news. It's August 26th news. It's the kind of news that you wake up from the moment you wake up and as you go throughout your day, It changes the way you think about your relationships. It changes the way that you go throughout your business dealings, the way that you walk throughout your high school halls. As you think about it, you think the throne is not empty, but on that throne, there is one wise and just and right king, and that king is not me. And because that throne is not empty, how will I now reorient and rearrange my life around the reign of that one true king who can be trusted? How will I bring my life under his life? That's the kind of news that we have in the gospel, and it's news that's for everyone. Back to the shepherds. When the angels left, the shepherds left the fields to go and see, and the text says, this thing that had happened. I always feel like that's a really understated moment. But they want to see this beautiful announcement, this good news. It's been entrusted to them first. What a powerful thing to be entrusted with the gospel. As we think of these shepherds being called in from the fields and heading to Bethlehem, maybe we think of 
a young David being called in from the fields of Bethlehem, being told about the announcement of a new king, come to find that it's actually him. And as these shepherds come in from the fields of Bethlehem to the arrival of a shepherd, but not just a shepherd, but a shepherd king, a king from the house and the line of David. The shepherds come from the field to seek the newborn king. Let's go and see. But the gospel writers are going to make something clear from here on out. Jesus is the one that's now going to be doing the seeking. And throughout the gospels, we hear this king shepherd Jesus say things like, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. I came for the strays. I came for the ones that need rescue. We'll hear, Jesus, we'll hear Jesus described as looking at the crowds and seeing them like sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion on them. And then maybe most famously, we hear Jesus stand in front of the crowds and some of you are already there in your minds as he stands up and he declares, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Think about this. It's almost a mind-blowing thought. The one lying in that manger will one day lay down his life again as a good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. And they follow me. See, for Advent, we've been asked the last four weeks to behold the Lamb. And I've been so thankful to think in this way, to think of Jesus as the Lamb and to be drawn through the sermons and through the music and all the, all the Advent readings to this, to behold the Lamb. And now I ask you to behold the shepherd, the one who seeks after the lost the one that we can trust because he knows us and we can learn his voice and we can trust his lead to behold the shepherd, the shepherd king. I brought with me a short video that I want to play for you in just a moment. Um, requires just a touch of setup here. Uh, the, the first time I was in Israel, there were so many things just to take in, uh, sights and sounds and smells. Um, but this first uh, video I want to show is... Um, we were watching this Bedouin shepherd boy, he's 15, 16 years old, his name was Muhammad, um, ended up having a conversation with him through an interpreter. He actually offered us his lunch and he was like three to four days away from home uh, because that's what they do. And um, as we were watching this Bedouin shepherd, he had a large amount of sheep and goats. And there was a moment where um, somebody else came over the hill, another shepherd came over the hill. And all of this other shepherd's sheep started to mix in with Muhammad's. And I'm sitting there watching this and I'm having a very slight panic attack because I'm thinking, how is he ever going to separate them? How is he ever going to tell the difference between them? They're not wearing jerseys or labeled very clearly or anything. And so in the, before the video plays, in the picture, you can see Muhammad. He's standing in there with his hands up in a white sweatshirt and jeans. And you can see he's got a flock around him, but he also has some of his flocks were up over the hill. And listen as closely as you can, and we'll play this. 
Notice the sheep on the upper right. See, and that's exactly, exactly. And in the Bible, sheep and goats. It's a short video because once I realized what was happening, I quickly grabbed my phone and tried to catch as much as I could. As I'm sitting there going, how is he ever going to separate these sheep? How is he ever going to get back the sheep that are his and tell the difference? All he did was he just started singing. Because that's what he does all the time. As he's out in the fields by himself, as he's out in the desert by himself, he just sings. He just sings to his sheep because he's training them to learn his voice and to know his voice. And so at moments like this, when he needs his sheep to follow him, all he needs to do is start singing. And as soon as he started singing, it was amazing to watch. All of a sudden, these sheep just start darting over the hill towards him because they know his voice. And they trust him. They trust his voice. They know who they need to follow. They know who will keep, him, keep them safe. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Why are we willing to arrange our lives around the reign of this king, this shepherd king? Because he is a good king. Because he is the shepherd king, he knows you, and he wants you to know him. And the more that you get to know him, the more you learn his voice, the more you trust his lead, the more you can listen to his voice and the more you can follow him and the more you will find that he is truly trustworthy and that he truly is that good, true, and trustworthy king, the shepherd king. I want to invite the band to come back up and they're just going to play for a few moments. And while they play, I just want to, I know many of you are probably headed off to things, good things, right after church today. Um, but I just want to set up a, a, just a brief time of reflection before we sing together. I know some of you have been probably moving at such a fast pace over the last few days, few weeks, and many of those things are good things, right? A lot of times we stay busy with really good things. And I just, maybe this moment of reflection would just be a great opportunity for you just to pause and just to behold the shepherd. Behold the shepherd. Others, as we approach the end of the year, your inboxes are probably already filled with all sorts of end of the year resolutions, New Year's resolution things. I'm not necessarily one for that, but I would say it is usually a good time to think about and to reflect and to evaluate. And what better time than now to ask, what am I arranging my life around? What is my life arranged around? What do I orient my life around? Is the, is the reign of Jesus the driving force of my life? And if not, where do I maybe need to reorient myself? And then lastly, I would just say, maybe some of you right now, you just need to ask, do I know the voice of the shepherd? Or is there a voice that is just so loud in my voice, in my life right now, that when it speaks, I drop everything to follow it, and it's not the voice of the shepherd? Maybe it's another voice. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a harmful voice and it's not leading me in the right direction. But do I know the voice of the shepherd? Do I trust that voice and do I trust where it leads me? So just ask you to spend just a moment reflecting and then we'll sing together. <laughs>